what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and today i am joined by wall street journal editor spencer jacob and he wrote a phenomenal book it's called the revolution that wasn't all right i love this book I binged this book because this book is all about the meme stock craze, all right? So even if you're not an investor, even if you're not an investor, you probably heard about the story. And if you're interested, you got to check this book out. So those of you who might have been under a rock in early 2021, like around springtime, uh, a bunch of people on Reddit decided to uh, blow up the stock price of GameStop amc and some other small companies and there's a lot of intricacies that go into investing and how this thing all worked uh it was uh called a short squeeze all right in investor lingo and by the way spencer breaks this all down because even though like i'm into investing this stuff is still confusing to me it's like they're like things that i don't even dive into but anyways uh, if you have heard of it, you probably heard the same stories over and over and over. You probably heard about the same people, the same players, all sorts of things, right? And when I got Spencer's book, I was like, man, this is just going to say the same stuff because I was like really in it because it's right when I started investing. But Spencer's book covers so many things that uh, a lot of us just didn't even know, right? Because he was really in it, reporting on it, researching it, investigating it. So I love this book. But something we talk about in this conversation, which I think is the most important part of this book, is we had uh, retail investors, right? Retail investors are your average person. We had retail investors get together on Reddit to pull this thing off. And from the outside, it looked like they just, you know, just totally destroyed these Wall Street hedge funds, people who are making multiple millions of dollars. But at the end of the day, most of the people on Reddit got screwed and a lot of rich people got a whole lot richer. And something that Spencer and I discuss, which is in his book, is how the, the CEO of AMC completely manipulated uh, the Redditors into helping him make tens of millions of dollars based on what was going on. And yeah, uh, uh, not that long ago, I was actually reading the book and I had to put it down. I wrote a piece over on Substack, by the way, go subscribe to me over there, called uh, For the Love of God, Please Stop Thinking Billionaires Are Your Friends, all right? <laughs> because I'm just so sick and tired of people thinking like someone like Elon Musk cares about you. Like if you're if you're sitting there and you're like, man, Elon Musk is my bro. Elon Musk goes to sleep at night thinking about me and my well-being. I hate to break it to you, Elon Musk does not care even the people i've seen him reply to on on twitter he does not care but it wasn't just elon Musk during this time there are other players like brian uh or david is it brian or david portnoy david portnoy from uh barstool sports and things like that just a lot of a lot of rich people who got in on this to build their influence and take advantage of the situation which ended up making them more money but anyways i think that's one of the most important lessons from this book um, those of you who know me, like, I do think everybody should be investing. I think you should be like financially literate. It's something that I waited too long to do, but at the same time, we do need to understand 
how the system is rigged so we don't fall into some of these get rich quick ideas like what we saw with the meme stock craze all right but anyways anyways there's also a conspiracy theory in here towards the very end of this conversation that spencer helps debunk and i hope you all listen to that okay but uh yeah head down to the description make sure you're following spencer over on twitter and grab a copy of his book like i said it's excellent but yeah definitely follow him on twitter uh he he covers a lot of interesting stuff and just today at the time of like recording uh and editing this uh, he got some like there's like people on reddit who just hate him you know because a lot of cognitive dissonance is happening so follow him on twitter and yeah before we get started make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul all right i've been writing a ton and this way you don't miss any updates and those of you who uh, remember a couple of weeks ago i said i had a big announcement that's being pushed uh to next week Okay, <laughs> because because I was like, I got to get this episode out with Spencer. So stay tuned. And hey, please, please, please make sure you go subscribe to me on YouTube. I am working on some new content over there. I really, really, really want to try to shoot to get at least one video out a week. I'm going to be doing more in-depth video essay type videos. So subscribe to me over on YouTube. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Spencer Jacob about his book, the revolution that wasn't. All right. Hello, Spencer. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So yeah, we're going to be talking about your amazing book, The Revolution That Wasn't. I grabbed it. I binged it, loved it. So for those who have yet to uh, read the book or uh, if they're not familiar with who you are, can you introduce yourself and just kind of what inspired you to write this book and what it's all about? Sure. Well, my day job is at the Wall Street Journal. and I'm the editor of the Heard on the Street column. It's a team of people who uh, write about finance and economics all around the world. And uh, I've been doing that for several years. Before that, I was an analyst at an investment bank mm. before I, I took a massive pay cut to, to become a journalist 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, and so I, I've always been, been very interested in how people act around money yeah. and investing. And I'm a student of financial history. And so when I saw this story, that I wrote the book about start to unfold. I, I knew that I had to write something. Uh, I just, I, it took me 10 minutes to, to see yeah. that there was a book in it. Yeah. So, so real quick, out of curiosity, because obviously, you know, working in the world of finance, it's, it's like good money, right? <laughs> like yeah, what made yeah. you, what made you decide that you wanted to start like covering it, writing about it and all that rather than working in that world? So, well, m money, and they say that money isn't everything. Money's a lot. Money's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you, so my, my parents, are both, you know, immigrants who, who came here in their twenties with, with, with nothing. And so I was always con concerned about doing something where I would earn enough money. And they, they had no idea about wall street. We didn't know anybody who worked on wall street. It was uh, just a complete, I knew it existed and I'd seen shows about it and read books about it, but I had no connection to it at all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was always personally very interested in in studying history, in, in understanding how people work and think and big turning points in history. And uh, 
so I was really torn between doing something practical and something interesting. And I was applying to, to graduate school. Uh, and uh, I literally, this is before the internet, I got an application by accident to a, mm. a program at Columbia that was more of a professional program, a master's program. And my undergraduate advisor said, uh, I did that program. I just mentioned to her that I, I had gotten the application and I think it'd be a good idea. Uh, and you, you know, you can always keep your options open and maybe you could do something that's a little more practical. And she was right. And my second day there, uh, I met a, a kid who's, you know, now a 56 year old kid, but he, you know, he had been an investment banker. I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd heard the word, but I really had no idea what it was. And he told me, uh, first thing he told me was how much he made while he, you know, with no experience coming out of college yeah. and, um, you know, during the 1980s and. I, I couldn't believe the, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that incredible now, but it did seem incredible to me then, given that he didn't know anything. All I had to do was work hard and yeah. be smart. And so I asked him how I could get into that. And he said, well, just, we were at Columbia University, he said, you can take all the classes you want at the business school while you're in this program, accounting mm. and finance and whatever, and then you'll get a job, you know, you'll, because, you know, you speak languages and stuff like that. And, and he was right. and. It, I did like it. I, I am interested in finance. I, I found a, a thing that I was interested in. Uh, I think finance is really fascinating. I think the whole struggle, uh, you have all these smart people fighting <laughs> over these points, which are dollars. Yeah. 24-7, 365 days a year. So I think that that investing is is really a, an interesting thing to to think about, to talk to people about. And I got a job in an investment bank and I rose very quickly. Uh, I became, after uh, less than a decade, a managing director in the equity department of my bank. Uh, and I think it was the youngest person ever to do that because I was working in emerging markets and it was just the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I was good at it. And then I just got, I was bored with it. Uh -huh. And I always, you know, I, I constantly had this imposter syndrome. It felt like, um, well, they're going to find me out and I better save my pennies and not live extravagantly, even though the rewards were getting pretty good towards the end, uh, because this, this is just not going to last forever. And, you know, I remember talking to my wife about it and saying, you know, I wish that I could, could do this, but not have to do all this constantly going to meetings and meeting with clients. And, you know, it's just all 98% marketing, basically, mm -hmm. once you get past a certain point, uh, I love talking about it and thinking about it. I like writing too. Yeah. Maybe I could write a book or, or, uh, or even become a journalist. And I had a good friend who would, um, uh, uh, was a financial, well, he was a journalist just generally. And, um, I asked him about it and said, what do you think about me going to journalism school? And he said, no, you know, you don't need to do that because you know, something that's, that's useful. You know, people mm. will, will pay you, people will hire you just on the basis of your knowledge. And you can figure out the, how to be a journalist part after that. And, and that was good advice. And that's what I did. And, and that's, you know, it's been two decades since I've been doing that, I'm, I'm happy about the change. Uh, it, you know, when you have to pay for the kids braces and stuff like that, yeah. then you sometimes you regret having made such a dumb financial decision, but, um, it, it's fine. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I have a, a normal and many journalists don't, unfortunately, you know, but I have a, yeah. a, a job with health insurance and a 401k and a normal middle-class salary. And that, that's really, uh, you know, saying something for journalism these days, because it's not a very financially stable profession. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so real quick, before we dive into the whole story about like Wall Street bets and everything like that, uh, you kind of discussed uh, a topic that I'm 
always interested in. Uh, you talked about this towards the end of the book, but it, it's about like the value that these big like uh, funds and firms that, that they bring to people, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously, you know, the stories about like these retail investors who don't know anything, they didn't go to school, they're like self-taught. A lot of people just, you know, give advice to each other and you discuss a lot of bad advice, but like how much, from your experience, how much value do you think uh, these, these, you know, investment bankers or hedge funds or money management funds, like how much value do they actually bring based on the statistics of their picks and all that kind of stuff? Well, not much. I mean, if you look at, um, let's say you were to look at any given time at the, the top 25%, the top quartile of, of mutual fund managers and say like, okay, well, those are the guys I want to put my money with. And then you would look at it basically, well, let's then look at them the next year and see what percent of those guys could repeat that performance. Not like being the best fund manager in the world, just being the top 25% in whatever category they're in. Once you get to five years, you typically have one person or sometimes zero people left in any group. So mm. it's just very, very difficult to, to repeat that performance. But we live in this world where we want to hitch our wagon to people who've had success in the past. And, and actually the, the ironic thing is that if you, uh, hitch your, your wagon to somebody who's been successful in managing money or making calls or going on TV and saying smart things, you're, you're very likely, uh, not only to have just an average performance, but even a below average performance. Mm -hmm. So it's a business, you know, full of people who uh, are, they might even believe it themselves that they're very smart and good at, at picking things. And then they'll, they have a bad stretch and they'll, they'll blame it on bad luck or blame it on something unexpected happening. But basically the, the value of financial advice is, is slightly less than, than zero. And in mm -hmm. terms of, by advice, I don't mean the advice of how to arrange your finances. You know, finance can be complicated. Your mm -hmm. inheritance can be complicated and trusts and all that stuff. You know, I don't, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't go to an advisor, uh, who's a fiduciary, you know, who's, who's like set up in a way to look out for your best interest, to set things up and set you on the straight and narrow and talk you off a ledge when scary things happen in the market and tell you not to go and buy that, like that wacky 3d printing stock. You know, I think that, yeah. I think that kind of advice is good, but the advice that boils down to what to buy, when to buy it, I, I you know, and I was in that business, I, I think it's, it's worth literally zero, less than zero. Yeah. And it's worth less than zero because it costs some, right? It, mm -hmm. People charge you a, a fee. Hedge fund managers charge very rich fees. Uh, mutual fund managers these days charge less than rich fees. But I think that if you were to, let's say, invest in, in index funds, look at them very infrequently uh, and, and don't panic when panicky, you read a panicky headline mm -hmm. and kind of stay on the, the straight and narrow and invest up to your risk tolerance so that you don't go crazy, you know, when some crazy headline is hit, you know, kind of pull your money out at the worst possible time. If you were to do that, you would do better than about 80% of your friends and neighbors. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, basically by kind of choosing to be average and choosing not to shoot the lights out, you would do better than four fifths of, of people out there. I, I can prove yeah. it to you uh, over yeah. time. And you would do better than 85% of the pros. So you, cause the pros actually, you know, they, they charge money and they have a lot of expenses. And, you know, when I was an analyst, uh, I, I, this was kind of a really disappointing thing to me is like, uh, I, I work in emerging markets 
and emerging markets, it's like dog years, right? I mean, like, mm. you know, you have a, a crisis a lot more often than you do in developed markets. So crazy stuff on the upside and the downside happens a lot more. And so, you know, you'd have people kind of getting very excited about something and you, you talk to some person managing lots of money for pension funds or retirees or whatever, and say, you know, I think this, this thing has run a bit too far. Maybe you should take some money off the table. And they'd be mm. like, what are you crazy? Like, no, like they'd be like angry yeah. at you for, uh, becoming pessimistic about something that they had held on to and made a lot of money on. And then, yeah. you know, and then later when that thing had gone down a whole bunch afterwards, you'd have the opposite discussion where you'd be like, you know, I think you should take a look at this thing again. This is like, this is getting pretty bummed out and cheap. And then they, they'd yeah. kind of hate you for saying that. So, because those guys face a lot of professional risk. And so they don't want to look dumb. They'd rather, you know, not look dumb than, than make you money. So like they're, they're sort of, that's why they, they move in such herds. You know, they're very yeah. concerned about their keeping their jobs and professional safety. So that, that's another unfortunate thing about professionals. That's an advantage, you know, to you as an individual, you know, if you can kind of ignore the noise and mm -hmm. just pay very little, um, you know, I think if, if you have questions about legal things about your finances or, mm -hmm. or whatever, or what kind of risks to take, whatever that that's a perfectly sound thing to ask somebody about, to get advice. You just you go to a doctor, you get advice. You wouldn't treat yourself. You know, you go to somebody who, who understands personal finance, right? Yeah. But I, I think the get you know, talking to someone about what to buy. And so that, and that brings us to my book because, you know, you had this whole group of, of, you know, more than 10 million people who were doing that to an extreme. They were being very hyperactive and they were getting advice from complete strangers on the internet yeah. uh, of what to buy. And, yeah. uh, and that didn't end well, uh, as I tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Like personally, like I only got into, uh, just even just financial literacy last year. Right. And I just, because I I'm curious and I read and, you know, I was like, I need to figure this stuff out. And fortunately, since I'm a psychology nerd, I started reading a lot about behavioral finance, mm -hmm. looking at all the dumb <laughs> things that we do with our money. That's what I, that's one of the things I loved about your book, by the way, is all of the psychology that you kind of intertwined and all that stuff. But, but yeah, it's, it's interesting too, because like you said, with these uh, managers that have like, uh, like a really great year, right. And people are like, oh, well, that person clearly knows what they're doing, right? This kind of idea that we put, we don't see luck too much. Was it kind of interesting because with this Wall Street bet story and you talk about like, uh, you know, Roaring Kitty, Keith Gill and stuff, and he had a ton of success betting mm -hmm. on GameStop. Did you kind of see that, that same pattern like within the Wall Street bets community, somebody made a lot of money by taking a big risk or whatever and people thinking that they could duplicate it or they should listen to this person because, oh, Clearly this person knows what they're doing because they made a lot of money. And yeah, so so aside from just Wall Street, did you see it also in this like kind of amateur investing community? Absolutely. You know, and the the thing is though, that if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I, I, I know about behavioral finance and I know about financial history. I know the basics of it. There's nothing new to see here. There are new things to see here. So I've been a student of this. I mean, I, I'll go back and I'll read all the newspapers, uh, mm. articles published around the 1929 crash and the 1932 stock market bottom in 2008 and 2000. And I, I've been interested in that for a long, long time. And I've been very interested in behavioral finance. And a, a, a lot of those things do explain what happened here, but 
there are, are new things. There are unique things at work here too. This story is a bit different because the thing is that human psychology is, is unchanged from, you know, before we, yeah. we had stock exchanges from before we had civilization, right? I mean, like our brains are, were formed during paleolithic times and they're, they're very useful for our genes surviving during those times. You know, when you, you heard a rustle in the bushes might be a lion, might not be, but better to, to bolt than, than stick around and find out. We see a bunch of people going towards something. Maybe they found some food and maybe they didn't and you're mm. wasting your time, but better, not, you know, to kind of follow the crowd and, and chase it. And all those things that kept us alive, kill us in the, the stock market. And seeing someone, and Rory Kitty, by the way, Keith Gill uh, was a very odd kind of influencer, right? Because he yeah. was through, I, I tell the story through him, but through 90% of the story, he was a guy who was being not just ignored, he was being ridiculed for what mm. he was doing. He was talking about buying into this, you know, nearly bankrupt video game, mall-based video game seller. And people thought he was ridiculous. And then he would like, you know, he would double his money in a short period of time. People would be like, well, you should sell. Like you're a moron for not selling. And then laugh at him later when he, he lost all that money and say, you, you should have sold. I told you, but he wasn't, uh, for most of the time out there trying to, to influence people. Whereas people typically will, it's called social proof. So yeah. if you've done something, um, if you, you know, you're sitting on a, a big pile of money, people are going to say like, well, I, I want to listen to that person. Yeah. Um, I, I see it myself. You know, I, um, you know, if I have a, see a family friend and I've seen this many, many times making a, a dumb financial decision and it's someone who I, I care enough about to kind of, to you know, yeah. get into it and, and kind of get into their business and tell them that they should or shouldn't be doing something. Um, and I, tr I generally try not to give any kind of explicit financial advice unless when I, I see something just really dumb. Yeah. Uh, I felt like I was much more influential when I was wearing really nice suits and making a ton of money as a managing director at an investment bank. 20 years later, I'm making a lot less money. I feel like I'm a lot less influential, despite <laughs> the fact that I have that 20 years of experience yeah. because it's the amount that's, you know, why, then why are you driving that crappy car spent? So like, why are you driving this like beat up old Honda full of dents and stuff like mm -hmm. that? Like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, that wasn't a wise financial choice, I guess, but you know that, so yeah, if you have, have suddenly made a lot of money then people are going to pay a lot of attention to you. But the, the point that I made about this being different is that there the companies that are behind social media platforms and the companies that are behind these new brokerage and also gambling apps, which are very similar, mm -hmm. uh, they, they have psychologists working for them too. Mm -hmm. And they understand psychology very, very well. So even though our psychology hasn't stayed, hasn't changed at all, companies understanding of how to, to get us to do things or not do things has gotten a lot, lot better. And yeah. so when you're looking at, at Robinhood and, and similar app based brokerages that became very popular and that really fanned the fires of this meme stock squeeze and, and led to a lot of people having a pretty bitter first experience with finance. Yeah. And when you look at the social media platforms where they got their advice, you know, they are, are set up in ways that put all these tendencies on steroids. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you, if you have gone out, let's say Chris, let's say that, that you're a, a very sensible guy and, uh, and you're looking at, at some potential investment and you're like, you make some very kind of rational argument as to why you, you like that investment. And then you say, I put 5% of my money into this thing. And here's my rationale and reasons, A, B, C, D, and E. And then I go on the same 
platform. And I'm like, I, I put all my money into this other thing. And uh, I took out a second mortgage in my house and, you know, I'm just taking a huge risk. Well, my, my post is a lot more interesting and it's a lot more yeah. confident. And it's always been the case that if you're more confident in making a proclamation, it doesn't matter if you're more accurate. If you're more confident yeah. in, in, in making some announcement, you're going to get more people paying attention to you. But then social media puts that on steroids because not only is, is my post a lot more confident and likely to get more attention, but your post will become invisible very quickly yeah. and mine will become visible very quickly because mine will get upvoted and I'll attract followers and then I'll be retweeted or whatever type yeah. of algorithm, whether it's a human or uh, a computer algorithm that, that uh, determines what's seen. Mine is going to get seen. The more outrageous it is, the more it's going to get seen, especially on Wall Street Bets, which was the, the subreddit that where a lot of this action took place. Outrageous stuff, you know, rose to the top and cautious cerebral stuff did not mm -hmm. rise to the top. And so like Rory Kitty, he was very cerebral and measured, wrote in complete sentences and stuff like that. He was being ignored for most of the time until people discovered that he had been talking about this stock that all of a sudden was at the center of everyone's attention. And then he went from making cerebral posts to posting memes, which is, you know, the, that's why they're called meme stocks, you know? And yeah. so, you know, that, then he became the most influential person in finance, basically in the world, you know, for a, about 10 days out there. Yeah. Uh, and he did not take advantage by the way, you know, he didn't go out and, and enrich himself as a result of, of his uh, undue influence. He, he could have made he literally could have become a billionaire yeah. just based on the, the attention that he was getting. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's, and he's, he's a, he's a, a so it is an odd person to be at the center of this because he's not, uh, he, he was not really a, an influencer per se. He just kind of became one by accident. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many, uh, there were so many different things, like even just, you're kind of recapping that and just human behavior. There was so much with this story, like, like just the other day I was writing, uh, uh, I wrote a Substack piece about this kind of like confidence paradox, right? Like we want people to be like somewhat intellectually humble, you know, someone who can admit what they're wrong, but that's not who gets followed. That's not who we yeah. listen to, right? It's kind of, uh, you know, even when we saw like COVID misinformation, right? Like someone who came out there confidently and said, this is what we're like, you know, vaccines do not work. I am confident that, you know, Bill Gates is putting microchips in, you know, but if like a, a scientist comes out and says, Hey, we're still learning about the virus, you know, they're not listened to as much. So that confidence it's, it's, it's crazy because we don't even really look at the, the accuracy all the time. Right. And one of the things that I'm, I'm really glad I learned about, um, Annie Duke wrote her book, Thinking and Best, but she talks about uh, resulting, right? And it's basing, right. basing decisions off the results rather than the process. And also, since I, live, since I live here in Vegas, when I was watching all this go on and I was brand new to investing, it reminded me of what I see here in my city, right? Like somebody going to a, a craps table and putting down their life savings, if they win, that doesn't mean it was a good decision, you know? And I'm, my son's only 13 and I'm trying to teach him about all <laughs> of these things so he doesn't fall for these just like these tricks of the mind and just things where people just go in hers to make bad decisions. Because I remember when this was happening, uh, you talk about it in the book. There are people who never invested. They never heard of like uh, GameStop. They never heard of meme stocks. They never heard of any of this stuff. And I was having people ask me like, hey, should I be investing in GameStop? Hey, you know, my mom's calling me and asking me, hey, what do you know about this? And I'm like, everybody calm down. Because the other thing that people don't realize about investing too, 
once you're about to jump in on something, it's often too late, right? It hit that right. high point. Now people are selling off. But, um, you know, uh, for people who don't fully understand too, to talk a little bit more about like what happened with GameStop, can you kind of break down, do an awesome job, one of the better ones I've seen of explaining like what shorting a stock is and then what right. a short squeeze is. For the average person, can you kind of explain what happened how these guys made money, what was going on? Uh, because when I first learned about it, I was like, what, what does this even mean? You know? Sure. No, absolutely. No, that's what I, I, I tried to think of like, uh, my mom or my sister, you know, yeah. both, my wife, you know, all, all educated people, uh, who can, you know, read and, and understand an argument, but you know, you, you can't just tell the story without stopping to explain. So I tell the story and then I keep pausing and, and explaining. And so, yeah, absolutely. I'll explain. So shorting a stock, um, Short selling has, has always been this reviled practice, and uh, it it's actually a, a shame that that it is. But I think it'll continue to be. Short selling is basically doing the opposite of what most of us do. Most of us we buy a, a mutual fund or we buy a stock. We hope it pays a lot of dividends and goes up, and we that we pick the right one. And uh, and the general trend historically is that stocks will you know pay you and, and go up. You know eventually they'll they'll have tumbles, but they're going to go up in value and short sellers are, are making the opposite bet. They are trying to profit from the inverse of that. It's not that they're, they're hoping that the world descends into like, you know, kind of dystopia and, and depression. Yeah. It's just that they're making targeted bets. They're saying this stock is too expensive, or they're saying, uh, in, in some cases, you know, I think Enron is a fraud. I looked at its accounting. I think it's a fraud. It's going to, mm. I think MCI WorldCom is a fraud. I think Valiant is a fraud. Those are the more rare cases, but short sellers are, think about what you're doing. You know, if you have a, a really, really bad bet, if you put all your money into one index or one market or one stock, the worst thing that can happen to you, unless you borrowed money is that you'll lose all your money. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you have to really try hard to lose all your money in the stock market. Uh, and if you spread your bets out, you'll never lose all your money unless the world ends. Right. I mean, right. I mean, I guess if you invested in the Russian stock market in 1917, you lost all your money yeah. because you know, the Bolsheviks took over, but whatever. But generally in our experience here, then you'll, then you had bigger problems than losing all your money. Uh, but a short seller up th their, their world is upside down. The most they can do is, is double their money. The most they can make is a hundred percent because they're betting that something will go down. And the most that it can go down is to go to, to zero. So the most that they can make basically is a hundred percent return on their money but their losses are unlimited. So they have to pick their spots very, very well because what they do typically, this is their other ways of doing it, but they, what they typically do is instead of owning a stock and uh, they don't own a stock and they borrow it from somebody mm. and then sell it. And then they have to buy it back. And that means that uh, as long as the stock is going down or doesn't go up too much, they're okay. But what happens sometimes and what happened to an extreme extent here was that the stocks of, of these, these meme stock companies, GameStop in particular, but a, a few other companies started going up much more than anyone could have anticipated. And so they had to buy them back in a hurry and their buying of them back kind of created this perfect storm where, you know, they went up 1,000, 2,000% yeah. like, um, amounts that no one could have, have anticipated. Maybe they should have, but they couldn't have anticipated. And that, that happened deliberately. So, you know, in the bad old days of, of U.S. stock markets, 
you would have someone, a short seller, you know, maybe they bet against a railroad or a canal or one of those stocks that was out there. And then you'd have some other smart people go out there and gang up on them and say, we know that he borrowed this stock to sell it short. And we're going to secretly go up and buy up all the stock so that we own almost all the stock. And then he won't be able to buy back the stock that he had. It's called a corner. Mm. And that used to happen from time to time in the old days. And basically then, unless you, you know, you want to go bankrupt, you have to basically pay any price. You could have sold the stock short at $10 and I could say to you, yeah, I'll sell it back to you at $100 or $200 or $500. How much money do you have to buy back yeah. the stock? And you need to buy it back for me, no matter what the price. Uh, and, and basically give me all your money. Otherwise you're going to go to debtor's prison. And that mm -hmm. used to happen before there were securities regulations. So the thing that, that got me very excited about this being a student of financial history is that I saw that happening and it, it's not legal to do that anymore, but I saw it happening in a legal, open, non-sneaky way with these meme stocks. Mm. Uh, I have three sons and one of my sons who's now, uh, he was a, a senior in college when this, this episode began to unfold, uh, brought it to my attention because a friend of his was, was involved in this. I started reading Wall Street Bats and I was like, I can't believe this. This is like, this is a stock market corner. And this wow. has not happened, you know, legally for more than a century. Um, and, or you know, almost a century, I guess. Yeah, it hadn't happened since the, the late 1920s. Mm. And, and that's, that's what was going on. So you ha I think you have to, so I, I explain, I, I hope I explain it well enough, the kind of history and some of the, the kind of greatest hits of short selling to explain what was going on. So you had, the thing that all these meme stocks had in common was they're kind of loser companies. They're companies that, yeah. that not only were they sort of, they weren't like flying cars and, and whatever, like, you know, they weren't sort of shiny stories that, that you tell people that eventually going to come crashing. There are, there are companies that people didn't even really care very much about. There are money losing companies. It was a mall-based retailer, BlackBerry, right? When's the last time you had a BlackBerry? Yeah. When's the last time, you know, and, and this is in the middle of the pandemic, when's the last time you'd gone to see a movie or spent very much time in the movie mm -hmm. theaters, AMC theaters that was like months away from going bankrupt? Those are the companies that short sellers had really bet against very confidently. And because they were so confident in betting against them and because you had so many new people in the market who were organizing on social media, you had this perfect storm where somebody said, hey, let me tell you about short selling and let me tell you what a short squeeze is. And let me tell you, and clearly there are sophisticated people there, let me tell you the, the most efficient way to create a panic and to create a short squeeze and to use uh, derivatives to do it. Because you can, mm -hmm. you have this broker who's going to allow you to, to buy these derivatives called call options, where with very little money, you can have like, it's like nuclear weapons. You can have this outsized impact with a very small investment and, mm. and blow these guys up and won't it be fun? And yeah. by the way, we don't like short sellers. Short sellers are bad and they bet against GameStop where you got all your video games when you were a teenager and they bet against AMC where you saw all those great movies when you were a kid. And let's, let's show them who's boss. They're trying to ruin these companies. Yeah. They weren't really trying to ruin those companies. They were just betting against them, but that was kind of lost in the discussion. And yeah. so it was this great game and it, it was a twofer. You could hurt, you know, this is a generation that had not very warm feelings towards wall street in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're struggling to repay their student loans. They're kind of their formative experiences were their parents struggling during the financial crisis, maybe even losing their homes. Then, you know, 
you know, have struggling to buy a home and stuff like that. Yeah. And so for the, this kind of 18 to 35 year old crowd, 80% male that made up the, the meat of this group, this was great. This was like revenge and I can make money. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, just a, so much about the book. Like I, I learned because like, this is a story that was covered extensively and I learned so much more from your book. But one of the, one of the things that, you know, makes me just really want others to get this book is to show how the well-off, the wealthy, however you want to say it, really took advantage of this situation and the narratives and everything like that, right? Because uh, it's so easy, especially when you have like a common enemy, right? Like these hedge funds or Wall Street, they're the enemy. So one of the things like you were just mentioning, like, you know, this idea that, oh, they're trying to destroy this company and there's AMC, right? There's AMC and the CEO. This is one story that I didn't hear about, but when I was reading it in your book, I was like, you have to be kidding me. So he ended up making, I think it was like tens of millions of dollars. Can you kind of explain what, uh, what's his name? Adam Aaron? Adam Aaron, Adam Aaron yeah. Yeah. Can you kind of explain? Sure. What, what he did, the, the kind of narrative he created, how people went to go help him and what he did to make an insane amount of money. And he offered uh, people popcorn in return. So can you, yeah, kind of I mean, that I, I, that, that really burns me up. I mean, there's several people, there's several already rich guys who just got a lot richer just by being in the right place, at the right time. They yeah. hadn't done anything smart, but he in particular, I, I feel that he, he crossed a line. Um, being, you know, not just getting lucky, you know, but, but being manipulative really. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, he embraced this group of, of shareholders that, uh, that had shown up. So basically, um, uh, you know, he, his biggest shareholder had been this Chinese billionaire who was losing a ton of money. Uh, and he, that billionaire, it was one of the second richest man in China got bailed out by this meme stock squeeze and then just sold all of his stock. And then you had uh, hedge funds and private equity firms that had lent him very expensive money uh, during this thing, like when the company was about to go bust. And then they walked away with tons of money too. And then he, you know, he had a bunch of, of restricted stock that he was thought was going to be worth nothing because the company was four to six months away from, uh, from going bankrupt at the time. And they went out and raised a bunch of money for the, for the company. They sold uh, I, I think at this point they've sold more than a billion dollars worth of, of stock and they pretty much sold it to, uh, the newest, least experienced group of investors. Mm -hmm. And they got that group very said, this is your company. We're going to do this. We're going to, um, sell it, you know, have NFTs and we're going to show this stuff and, uh, and you're the, our owners and show us that you're a shareholder and you'll get free popcorn, a free large soda and a popcorn when yeah. you come to AMC. He personally, he and his fellow senior executives of the firm, and I, I might not be up to date on, on this yet, but they, they sold almost all of the stock that they legally could sell. And then some of it that they couldn't sell, you know, he, he transferred to his sons yeah. so that they could sell it. So just in terms of the stock sold, they sold about $90 million worth of stock. And this stock has lost a lot of its value since the peak. So they stirred up a lot of excitement. Uh, I think deliberately they understood that they were like, you know, th this is the time to strike while the iron is hot and people are very excited about the stock. But they also understood that there's no way that AMC is worth this much. It was worth so much more money than it should have been. Um, the company's not, hasn't gone bankrupt, obviously, because they managed to convert a lot of their 
their debt into stock and they managed mm-hmm. to sell a lot more stock. And now the pandemic is sort of, you know, uh, no, not in this very scary phase. And so people are going to the movies. They're not making a profit yet, but they're not, they're not bleeding cash like they, they were. So the company will kind of live to fight another day yeah. for who knows how much longer, but it, 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 you know, it's not in danger of shutting its doors today, but yeah. that's not the point. The point is that, you know, that they sold a lot of very, very expensive stock to people who really didn't know better. Yeah. And the, they appealed to their, you know, their sort of these fanboys basically. And mm-hmm. a lot of other people, you know, GameStop was worth, at, at its nadir, it was worth about $210 million, the whole company, mm. in the spring of 2020. Things looked very bad. The CEO of that company, he was the fourth CEO of the company in five years. The company had not made money in years. He didn't do anything to turn it around. And he walked away after the meme stock squeeze with a package that was estimated to be worth $139 million personally. Personally. Yeah. I mean, that's like if, if the head of one of the largest companies in America, one of the largest, most profitable, successful companies in America walked away with that kind of a package, people would be tut-tutting and, you know, wondering whether they should claw it back. And this was, this was a company that hadn't done anything that was, you know, that still hasn't made a profit. So, I mean, you know, and then you had a lot of people in finance. So you had this group of people who didn't like Wall Street, but the people who made the most money out of this were either in corporate boardrooms or on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a bunch of rich white guys, basically, who made a lot of money. And of course, there there were individuals who got it very early on the meme stock squeeze, who still have a profit on paper, who got a lot of them got out with a nice paper profit. But there are far more people who, who lost. Yeah. Money. I mean, it's and and so, you know, I'll, I'll get this hate mail from people saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I made a lot of money. Of course, in any people made money on pets.com. That went yeah. bankrupt, you know, went from the, this hot IPO to being bankrupt in nine months. People make money on every kind of mania and, and panic, you know, but that, that's not what I'm saying. But as a group, this, this group that thought that they had kind of figured out a better mousetrap and a way to beat Wall Street didn't beat Wall Street at all, you know? And, yeah. and so that's, that's kind of sad. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a harsh truth, right? Like, because I, you know, I kept up to date as it was happening and all that kind of stuff, watched uh, some recaps of the hearings and everything, which I do want to ask about in a minute, but you, you have this whole section where it's just like, here, are, here's, here's the people who actually made the most money on this. Right. right? And, you know, uh, regardless of how many, uh, you know, retail investors did make money, they weren't making 139 million type money. They weren't making like Adam Aaron, type money you know what i mean and that's that's what's kind of uh you know frustrating to me and i it it did it did sour a lot of people because there are so many people who lost a lot you also you know you have this thing where a lot of people don't want to admit how much they lost so it'd be hard to even like survey them and all of that but it's very clear who made money and like you said you say in the book and you kind of lay it out like there were uh, you know, money management companies on Wall Street who saw this happening and they took advantage of the situation and made an insane amount of money as well. But one of them that really like kind of bugged me was uh, Chamath, right? Because right. this right. is right when I, this, it was just weird timing for me because this is right when I started learning about investing, all this was happening. And, you know, I'm a millennial, right? I got laid off uh, t- two months after my son was born, 2009. Wow. 
right? Like I just had this salt, just sour taste in my mouth, but it was, it was great seeing Chamath come on, go viral for saying like, yeah, these little guys are sticking it to the big guys and oh, darn you, Robin Hood and everything like that. And then slowly over time, I realized I'm like, I don't think Chamath is that great of a guy, right? So real quick with him, because it's something I, I hadn't thought of until I was reading your book and revisiting it. Chamath is like an 86% owner in SoFi, which is mm -hmm. similar to Robin Hood, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a yeah, trading yeah. app that you could use on your phone. It has some other features and functions. But what do you, what do you think his, like, uh, his role was or even his motives when coming out? Like, do you think they were self-interested or do you think he was really against what these people on Wall Street were doing? Like, what are your thoughts on that whole situation? You know, I can't get into anyone's head, but I, yeah. I think that he had certainly a lot of potential for, uh, for self-interest because Chamath, this is Chamath Palaipitiya, who's a former Facebook executive. He, mm -hmm. His main source uh, of wealth is SPACs, special purpose oh, yeah. acquisition companies, otherwise known as blank check firms. He was the king of SPACs. Um, as uh, one guy who doesn't like it very much, referred to him as like SPAC Jesus, you know, uh, he, um, would set up these companies, basically like a bag of money. It's like basically saying, I'm going to sell this stock and this stock doesn't do anything. I'm going to sell. And it was, they were largely purchased by retail investors when the stock market did nothing but go up, especially during this period, they would basically say, here's a hundred million, 200 million, $400 million that I'm going to sell you, uh, of this stock. It doesn't have anything in it. It's just a, a, a holding a bunch of money and you need to trust me and I'm going to take this money and you have to give me two years and I'm going to go out and buy something. And when I buy that thing, they were going to vote whether or not we, we all want to buy it or not. Uh, and, and then whoever doesn't you know, want to, you know, if, if you want to miss out on the big, uh, big payoff then go ahead, I'll give you your money back. But a lot of times the, the value of the, the, the SPAC would go well above the money that you're going to get back. And so why would you hand the money back? But as an insider in the SPAC, you would get something called warrants, which were like stock options, where you could own up for free, basically, up to a fifth of the company that was purchased, and then you could sell it soon after. So the people who were the insiders of these SPACs, while the going was good, made, uh, made lots of money, made billions of dollars in, mm -hmm. in extreme cases like his, uh, basically just saying, trust me, Give me some money. I'll go out and buy something. And the things they went out and bought were like, you know, hydrogen truck companies yeah. and flying cars and they bought draft kings and stuff like that. And those SPACs now we're looking back at the rubble of that. They've done as a group very, very, very poorly. As a matter of fact, uh, one, I think the best performing exchange traded fund this year is a fund that basically bet against SPACs. It's bet, bets on the inverse of of SPACs. And so he, he made a lot of money and it, it was really a kind of a heads I win, tails you lose kind of model because mm -hmm. he did not have too much skin in the game. I mean, you could say like, oh, well, my stock went down too. Okay. But you got your stock for free. It's still worth yeah. something. It's still worth a lot. And you sold a lot along the way. And he was egging on this group. And yeah, as you said, one of the companies that he, he owned a, a lot of through uh, a SPAC was SoFi, which is very similar to, to Robinhood. It's a personal finance firm that uh, in some ways competes with Robin Hood. And so he was vilifying Robin Hood and saying, yeah, I'm with you against these, and I think I'm quoting him directly, these corporate scumbags. Uh, when 
a lot of people would call him a corporate scumbag uh, for yeah. the things that he did. So, yeah, so I think it's, <clears throat> it, to my mind, it's it's very cynical. I don't know what he's yeah. thinking. I can't uh, get into someone's what's head. Maybe he's well-intentioned. Um, not what I think, but. Yeah, it's, uh, well, what's interesting, because there's uh, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's just like, um, like the value of influence. And, and I'll kind of explain what I mean by that. So I found Chamath, right? I'm like, yeah, this is like a rich guy who's sticking up for guys like me, right? So then I found out about his podcast. I wanted to learn more about him. I'm like, okay, so he's with me, but he also knows a lot about other things. But since I'm a very curious person, like if I don't know something, like for example, like options, shorting a stock, those got too complicated. So I'm like, not going to touch those. Right. But he, as I started following him and looking into his stuff, he was always talking about SPACs. Right. And then just like you explained, I looked into it. I'm like, this seems pretty damn risky. So I didn't touch it. And then it kind of made me, uh, just that, that kind of put a sour taste in my mouth because I was like, He's promoting this thing that not a lot of people understand, but because of that idea that he's implanted that he's on your side, it's influential. But anyways, there's so much going on in the world, like going back to like, you know, COVID misinformation and conspiracy theories. We've seen a lot of people capitalize on that, right? Mm -hmm. You being against uh, what the mainstream scientists say about COVID, you being against that gains you a lot of influence. But anyways, what I've been thinking about influence is kind of this like, indirect uh kind of way that you uh kind of profit from it right because like i was just explaining with your math you bring in that audience and then down the line that's where you make money off them right you build that trust yeah you know i think so and i think that if you look at i mean the thing is that there are literally tens of thousands of, of, of people out there who have some uh, degree through on social media of, of financial influence. Most of them are not famous. Most, most of them you've never heard of, you know, you go on, uh, on TikTok or go on YouTube mm. and you have these influencers and people think, I'm going to tell you how to get rich. Just do what I say. Yeah. And I made this much money. I, I think that there, there are two kinds of rewards, uh, that, that people get from being influencers like that. There are the direct financial rewards subscribe to my channel because you know, just having a subscriber or having a view or having a click equals money today in, in social media. There are a lot of people who, who make money. Maybe it's not a, a millions of dollars, but it's a meaningful amount of money to them. It could be thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. but you also have people who gain psychic rewards, um, yeah. not financial rewards through being followed. I think people, they like to be influential and they like to, to feel like they're sort of, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe they're even well-intentioned. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone out there is a liar and a crook, but people like to, to drum up rewards, but go to something like this, this is go back one generation, right? Go back to CNBC and you were a little bit younger than me. So you didn't spend the nineties, you know, watching CNBC, mm -hmm. but I hear like maybe my mom, uh, who's, um, who's going to be 81, uh, soon, you know, she was just in the process of, of retiring kind of. And, uh, she began to watch CNBC and she would, would watch it for like maybe four hours a day. You know, she was just working part of the day and, you know, one fund manager after another would come on during the dot-com boom. This is when CNBC was the height of its ratings with Maria Bartiromo and John Kernan and, you know, some of the people who are still there today, but some people who are, are no longer there and you'd have, you know, they'd have this constant stream of fund managers who were going out there. Now, wh why were they 
why would someone be so generous as <laughs> to go on TV and, you know, yeah. tell you their best ideas and tell you, this is what I think is going to happen. And these are my best ideas. And these are my worst ideas. Well, do those ideas have any value? Sometimes they're going to be right. And sometimes they're going to be wrong. On average, it's like a coin flip as we we've seen in study after study. So the value of that advice is, like I said, at the beginning of our conversation is kind of zero, but they got their name out there. They got their face out there. They feel pretty good about being on TV. They can tell all their friends I was on TV mm -hmm. and look at me and, and they're drumming up some business for themselves and, and buffing up their image. And the, these financial influencers who operate today through social media and are influential for millennials and generation Z are really much of the same thing. Some of them yeah. might be well-intentioned. Some of them are doing it just for the sort of the thrill of, of being paid attention to, and some of them are doing it for the direct or indirect uh, financial rewards. I mean, that's, yeah. you always have to view advice of any kind through that, that prism. And, you know, people yeah. I, ask me a lot after this book came out, like, well, what's the, what's the sort of one piece of, of financial advice that you would give people? And I mean, it's not like do buy this, don't buy that. Uh, it would be like, whenever you, you deal with, with someone, uh, and, and your money, uh, think about, are they making their money on the front end or are they making money on, on the back end? Mm -hmm. uh, like I, I said at the beginning, I don't think that it's a, a bad thing. If you're, you're not particularly confident or, or knowledgeable about your finances and you find somebody who's, and that word is very important, a fiduciary, mm -hmm. somebody who's, whose duty is to look out for your best interests. And you know, yeah. that there's a kind of legal definition of that. And that person can help you invest. That person, they, they're going to cost a little bit of money, but they might very well save you more money in, in the long run than they, they cost you because they're keep keeping you from making mistakes and getting you to save and getting you not to panic and getting you to sort of, to, to build a nest egg. Mm -hmm. uh, person like that makes money on the back end because they're just getting a percent of your, your net worth, basically. Uh, somebody who gets their money in the front end would be like Robinhood. Robinhood, you make a trade, they, they charge zero, but they're making money because they're selling your trade to, uh, to a middleman. And that middleman is making money. And that middleman loves it when you trade actively. The middleman yeah. likes you know, securities and Virtu and whatever, who instead of being a stock exchange, they, they process those trades and they scalp a, a fraction of a penny off of that trade. Everyone's making money, but you're not necessarily making money. But the more often you, you transact with them, the more money they make. And so yeah. they, they have an interest in making you hyperactive, but it's well understood. This yeah. is one thing that's very well understood is being hyperactive is deleterious to your financial returns. Mm -hmm. So you can, the, the way to build a nest egg is to do it very slowly and to be cheap and lazy, basically to pay very little money yeah. and to, and to transact, like give yourself a punch card and say, I'm going to do five things in, in a year buying or selling a fund or a stock and hopefully yeah. like some cheap index fund. And that's all I get. I get those five changes in a year. I'm not going to allow myself to do more than five things. That yeah. would be a pretty good discipline to, to have where you, because th there are people who were trading, you know, 11,000 times over a period of six months on, on Robinhood, even though they weren't paying any commission, they, I can almost guarantee you that their returns were subpar or yeah. negative because of their level of hyperactivity, hyperactivity. And that, that's what is, was very much encouraged this new cohort that was new to investing that, that I yeah. write about. And so I'm, I don't just tell the, the meme stock squeeze is a crazy fascinating story. And I do tell the story of what happened, the highs and the lows and, and how mm -hmm. it all came together. But I also 
tried to tell the story of just how this new generation kind of came into investing and kind of mostly had their butts handed to them, you know, yeah. uh, by, by the time it was all said and done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so fortunate that early on in my investing, I, I made, uh, I made a lot of those mistakes very early on with a very little amount of money. And I, I pumped the brakes as I learned more and I'm like, oh, wait, I'm doing, I'm being irrational and doing these things, but kind of like when you, you mentioned too, uh, you know, like your mom watching uh, CNBC forever. When I got into it, I started watching YouTube for hours a day of these financial, uh, personal finance people, but they're like, kind of like you mentioned, like, oh, hey, look, I got on TV. Well, on YouTube, it's incentivized kind of like, you know, with certain like headlines to be very sensational. So it was these YouTubers making these like, oh, I, I just put all my money in this stock or, oh, this stock is going to a hundred X. Like, I don't know if you've looked into it, but they are just, and the oh, wow yeah. no, I, like, I, I watch, I watch a lot of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you, you actually had people who would just start out by saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. But yeah, I made all this and, money. And then yeah. they would have, some incredible number of followers. Yeah, and I mean, just to, to give you like a contrast between the front end and the back end, and I, I mentioned this in the book, during one day, one day in the middle of the meme stock squeeze, Robinhood got more customers to sign up for its services than a robo-advisor, Wealthfront, like the original, it had in 13 years of its history. Mm -hmm. This is like the OG robo-advisor. Robo-advisors are a pretty good product, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I should probably be getting like a commission from uh, these robo-advisors. <laughs> hey, I, I steered a lot one. of people towards yeah. that. But they're basically, they put you into index funds and they just have an algorithm. You know, if, if, if you, especially if you have too little money for uh, a financial advisor to really kind of get on the phone with you and give you specific advice and you're just getting started out. But even if you do have more money, you know, they're, they're basically doing pretty sound stuff. They're like putting you into index funds, rebalancing, tax laws, harvesting, whatever, giving you basically good advice. But it's like, it's an algorithm. It's a robot giving you the advice. You know, they, they only make money if, if your net worth is rising, right? So they, they kind of, their interests are kind of aligned with yours, just the way like a fiduciary financial advisor mm -hmm. would be. Robinhood yeah. got more, more customers in a day. Yeah. One day than they had in their entire history. It's crazy. You know, yeah. so it's, it's kind of hard to, to sell what's good and prudent, uh, yeah. online or in just in terms of financial profits. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially with YouTube, the, the, the money, the way that YouTubers make money is very different. Uh, I just know at the height of my YouTube career, I was making, and I didn't even get as many views as a lot of these guys. I was making about seven or $8,000 a month. And wow. that's, that's a lot, right? And you, you figure that I'm, I was getting a fraction of the views of some of these guys. So the money that they blow on these stocks isn't anywhere near to the money they're making on the views. So they're bringing people in saying these things, they lose money. It doesn't really uh, matter, but yeah, I try to caution people as well, but with just a few more minutes of your time, Spencer, I got to ask you, I can't let you leave without asking you help, help me understand this. And maybe, uh, because I've been thinking about rereading a section of the book, but mm -hmm. Uh, Robin Hood halting trading, right? You right. kind of, yeah. and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm like misread or misunderstood, but you kind of, uh, discuss like how it might, how it's like, kind of like a conspiracy theory. That's not actually doesn't really have much legitimacy because to my understanding is they, you know, and you discussed, they halted trading for retail investors, but not, uh, you know, large funds. And the reason, like, I understand the reasoning, like they would go bankrupt if they didn't, but is that the only reason or is there something else that I'm missing? Like, why is that, sure. that narrative not exactly correct? 
Sure. Well, let me let me preface this by saying that uh, I get paid a salary by the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I got paid an advance, you know, an advance for writing this book. Uh, I, I get so much hate mail when I bring this stuff up that oh, who's no. paying you? You're a show for Wall Street. So yeah. just for the millionth time, I'm not a, a show for Wall Street. I'm not being paid by hedge funds or by anybody. But this is the kind of the most controversial part of the whole story. Well, I think the only kind of really boring chapter, but I had to write it in the in the book, which is to explain what happened. So um, on as things were really, really going crazy in the middle of this meme stock craze, on January 28th, Robinhood, which was the broker for the majority of people who were taking part because, you know, they, they were the sort of the YOLO investor broker, right, um, said, you can't buy, you can only sell. You can't buy this list of 13 stocks that had been going through the roof. And as I explained, you know, there was this corner in, in the process of going on where these hedge funds were being blown up. There's one hedge fund that had lost $7 billion in a few days, uh, who was, you know, in particular targeted, but there are other funds too. And that, that fund, uh, Melvin Capital got an infusion of cash from Citadel, uh, LLC, which is a hedge fund firm in Chicago, uh, run by a man named Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin is also the major shareholder of a separate firm, also called Citadel, Citadel Securities, a totally different firm mm. that was the main firm that processed and profited from all of these trades. They were, they acted like a stock exchange. So they had this upsurge in activity and they were the main processor of trades for, for Robinhood. And of course they were in, in communication with Robinhood throughout because the market was just going crazy. They talked to them every day anyway, but they especially were talking to them at the time. And so there is a conspiracy theory that will not go away that because that kind of short circuited the whole meme stock squeeze when people couldn't buy anymore for a few mm -hmm. days, that this was done to save hedge funds and that there are two sets of rules. And that's why congressional hearings were called. And you had politicians on the left and the right, either misunderstanding or intentionally misunderstanding what had happened. You had late night talk show hosts. You had basically everyone was sure that the fix was in and that you had this group that had finally, finally, finally turned the tables on Wall Street. All of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under them and they couldn't buy anymore. And let me, let me just explain to you, it's, uh, it's a little bit less exciting than the, the narrative that was discussed on late night talk shows. But what happened was that Robinhood uh, and its uh, competitors, but Robinhood mainly did too good of a job getting people excited about stocks. Because as long as you were, people were buying this and selling that and, and being very active, they were making a lot of money. They were making record money during this, this period, record mm -hmm. revenue. Because the more you trade, the more they make. They just make money. It's like a cash register going ka-ching every time you traded and trading yeah. exploded during this episode. But what you had was people getting very excited, all buying a certain very narrow subset of not very widely known or traded stocks with very wide spreads and they were buying them. And basically they, when, when you buy a stock, it looks like in your account, you buy a stock and it looks like the money goes out of your account and you, your, that money's gone. And then the stock's in your account. It doesn't exactly happen instantaneously. The money takes a couple of days to get to whoever sold it to you. And the stock takes a couple of days to actually be uh, in your account. It's not even in your account. It's the broker's account. It just looks like it happened instantly. And there's a, a an organization that's a government body, basically, that makes sure that everyone gets the stock they're supposed to have and everyone gets the money they're supposed to have. 
And that organization uh, is, you know, basically holds deposits from every broker that's out there uh, and make sure that the money all gets where it's going. Because what if a broker goes bankrupt? They need to make sure that all, every other broker does then go bankrupt. And so they, you have to put a bunch of money down and deposit with them. They looked at the risk that each broker is taking and they looked at Robinhood that week and they said, guys, uh, you need in the next three hours to give us $3 billion in cash. Uh, otherwise you can't trade anymore. You're out of business. So what would have happened then would be like that not only would people not have been able to buy stocks through Robinhood, they wouldn't have been able to sell stocks. They wouldn't have been able to get their money. They wouldn't have been able to do anything for weeks and weeks. And other brokers in a kind of cascading spiral might have, have gone bankrupt too because that money, they weren't good for the money mm. um, because too much risk was taken in a too narrow part of the market. So Robinhood, there was no way, even as, as exciting as its business was then, there was no way that they're going to get $3 billion in the middle of the night from, you know, they, in their history as a company, they never raised that much money. And so they went back to this organization called the DTCC and they said, listen, can you cut us some slack if we don't allow our customers to buy any more of these stocks? Um, how much, what's the minimum amount that we could put down? If we could get $700 million from our lenders. Would that be enough? for us to stay in business. And they said, yes. And, mm -hmm. and so that's why they had to, to hold trading. And so it was like seen as the stab in the back, but basically Robinhood, that just to repeat myself, you know, they, they did too good of a job getting people yeah. excited about trading when people got excited about a very narrow specific bet all in the same direction that it fried their circuits. They weren't ready. They didn't have enough money to, to back up all, all of those people's bets. Yeah. And and that is that has remained a, a subject of conspiracy. Uh, people are going to watch, listen to this podcast, and um, and send me more hate mail and say that I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, th it is yeah. that is the truth. That is what yeah. happened. And, like, and it's you know it doesn't doesn't make as yeah. good copy as you know it was, <laughs> the fix was in, but that's that's what happened. Yeah. And um, and there's a whole yeah. you know government report that came out quite recently explaining exactly what happened from the congressional committee that mm. is long and boring. It's 60 something pages, but I recommend you read it if you, you know, if, if you don't believe me. Yeah, no, that's definitely something I'll check out. And Spencer, I'll, I'll tell you two things. One of them is hopefully nobody from my audience, because I bring on a lot of people, uh, authors who debunk conspiracy theories. So I, I, I like to think my audience is a little bit more rational and looks into these things, but the way you just explained it too, that makes total sense, right? Because it appears instantaneous, just that explanation, like, but it's not, you know? So, but I might check out that, that report to get a little bit more insight, but that, that makes a whole lot more sense. I was like, what, what, just, just let them do it real quick though. Real quick. Only question, uh, were other platforms able to sell and, uh, do the buying um, and selling? Some, or just some other platforms. So there's a, uh, some brokers do it themselves. They clear their own trades like Robin Hood cleared their own trades and some similar brokers, uh, didn't work big enough yet to clear their own trades. So they used a third party firm and that firm, uh, also got a warning and also had to stop. So uh, a, a handful of firms had to keep, so like, I think Fidelity Securities, for example, you could still buy the stock through Fidelity Securities, uh, which is a very big broker, the biggest, as a matter of fact, and I think Schwab allowed you to buy, which was a very big broker and with much more sober customers, 
by the way. So their yeah. customers weren't as active in this. Yeah. But um, I think uh, Webull, for example, and a couple of other ones, and I think maybe E-Trade, I had, have to check that, but so there were some brokers that also put in similar restrictions, not necessarily the exact same restrictions for the exact same amount of time, but they, they got similar warnings that yeah. they had to put up more collateral. And Robinhood specifically, I mean, they were the, the most sort of, you know, over their skis during yeah. this time. Yeah, that you know, makes yeah. sense too. Because with those apps, you can just sign up instantly, get going. I use Schwab and I can't remember. All I knew was I wasn't touching the stock. So I can't remember how, right. like, I, but Schwab usually has like a, a notification that pops up. Like when the war in Ukraine started, there was like some kind of warning that popped up and like things were different. So uh, yeah, but, but Spencer, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but I'm glad that we're, we're done because everybody needs to go get the book. Cause we didn't even cover half of it and you did such a fantastic job with the book. So for anybody uh, interested, the book is out now, but where can they follow you and uh, you know, all your other writings? Uh, do you have any upcoming projects? Where can we find you to keep up to date? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, they can follow me. My uh, last name has a bit of a funny spelling. So it's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-J-A-K-A-B uh, at Twitter. Uh, they can Google me. They can read my articles. I mostly edit these days. I edit, I'm the editor mm -hmm. of this column. So I, I do write from time to time, but much less frequently than I used to. I used to write a daily investing column at the, at the journal. Um, and, uh, yeah, and they could buy the book, which is called the revolution that wasn't, um, and I please send me feedback and, you know, if you like it, Hey, go on Amazon and uh, give it five stars. If you don't like it, nobody likes to gossip. Don't, don't read anything. <laughs> um, you know, but no, I mean, it's, uh, I, it, it's my pleasure to, to do this and, um, yeah, I, I like to kind of explain this wacky world of finance, which yeah. is really overcomplicated. First of all, you don't need to understand all the complexities of finance uh, to invest because everybody needs to invest their money. Uh, you don't need to be able to do options math to do it or to buy options for that matter. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, there are people whose interest is making it sound very, very complicated uh, so that you pay them basically mm -hmm. or you buy products from them. So uh, I, I very much like, you know, having come from that world to kind of show you that there's, you know, there's no kind of wizard behind the curtain and, uh, how the, the business makes money. I love writing about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the, the book has had such a good reception. Absolutely. I love it. So yeah, thanks again so much for your time. And yeah, maybe uh, during the next mean stock, crazy, write a new book. We'll bring you back on. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Spencer. And by the way, by the way, if you're like someone who's not an investor, do me a favor and like, I don't know, because you can't leave comments on freaking podcasts, which drives me nuts, but like tweet at me or uh, message me on Instagram or DM me. Like, let me know if you are like, not like into investing, let me know if uh, how Spencer broke things down, like made sense. All right. Like, cause I really want people like, even if you're not like big into investing, like to understand these stories and stuff like that, because when it comes to just, you know, like, uh, the way our systems are set up and, you know, when we discuss like things like capitalism, you know, poverty, who's struggling and everything, we do need to understand what's happening on wall street, because a lot of people who make a lot of money have a lot of influence. And I just want people to kind of understand what's going on. All right. So shoot me a DM or something like that. But anyways, anyways, 
uh what did you think about that uh that conspiracy theory about robin hood like even when i read it even when i was reading the book like i was a lot nicer because i was like chris you're probably wrong about this when i was reading the book i'm like eh, i think spencer might be wrong about this one right because it seemed like what he was saying about when robin hood like halted trading that all they could do their only their only thing that they could do was either do that or go bankrupt and i'm like okay well just go bankrupt then but the way he broke it down for me personally at the end right there of that conversation by explaining that there is a middleman in between and it's a, like a, a government agency, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know what I mean? So it, it wasn't just like about, you know, going bankrupt. But yeah, I really, I really do need to look into and see if uh, my brokerage, uh, Schwab, uh, halted trading. I can't remember. I can't remember because honestly, when I saw all this stuff going on, even though I was a brand new investor, I'm like, hell no, I'm not touching that. And when it came to Dogecoin, I think I got like maybe a hundred bucks in it. And as soon as I made a little bit of profit and I saw what was going on, like it was getting hyped way too much, especially with Elon Musk going on uh, Saturday Night Live, I'm like, nope. And I sold all of it. I made it just a tiny, tiny bit of money. I think I made like 20 bucks or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Those of you who followed that story right after Saturday Night Live, it hit its all time high and freaking tanked. And now Elon Musk is nowhere to be found when it comes to talking about Dogecoin. But that is a rant. For another day but anyways i am super happy that uh spencer wrote this book and he came on the podcast please 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 if you like to read if you're curious if you heard about this story whatever it is like head down to the description go grab a copy of it because like i said there's so much in this book that was not covered in the media like i watch and listen to a lot of independent media and spencer's book covered so many things that I had not even heard of, especially because once stories and the hype kind of dies down, a lot of people don't do the follow-up stuff, which is all in this book. And Spencer is, uh, he gets into a lot of the different like psychology behind how people got swept up in this, why people made bad investments and all that. So head down to the description, grab a copy of his book and make sure you follow him on Twitter. That's linked down below as well. All right, but before I let you go, a couple things. Uh, one, make sure you are following me on social media at the rewired soul. All right. Um, because like I said, there are updates, uh, and I love talking with all of you. A lot of you have been giving me good book recommendations. I like having conversations about, you know, what's going on. Like I usually like while I'm working, I have two screens. So I'm like on Twitter and, you know, talking about like current events and stuff. So interact with me, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. All right. It's at the rewired soul, super simple. And don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. New content is a coming. Okay. You can also uh, subscribe over on Substack, which is linked down below. Paid subscribers, you get all these episodes a day early. And it's only five bucks a month or $50 for the year. Really helps me out. And there was also uh, another way to help out, which is there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So it not only helps me out, it helps you out. So many of you know, like mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life ever since I got sober and better help online therapy is a service that I have personally used. So if you're interested, definitely check it out. It's affordable. Uh, it's online. So you could do it from the comfort of anywhere and you work with a licensed therapist from your state. Okay. So it's a great service. Head down to the description and check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. So another huge, huge thanks to Spencer for writing an amazing book, taking the time to come on the podcast. He's a super busy guy. All right. And yeah, for all of you have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time.